And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Up next, cover to cover, open book. Welcome to the Poet to Poet series. I'm your host, Dina Serrano. Today's guest is Lucille Lang Day. She's just written a book called Married at 14, a memoir. It's a pleasure to have in the studio Lucille Lang Day. I want to tell you a little about her. She's published creative nonfiction in many literary reviews and is the recipient of numerous awards and also the author of a children's book, Chain Letter, and eight poetry collections and chapbooks, including Curvature of Blue, Infinity, The Book of Answers. Her first poetry collection, Self-Portrait with Hand Microscope, received the Joseph Henry Jackson Award, and she received an MA in English and an MFA in Creative Writing at San Francisco State University, and an MA in Zoology, and a PhD in Science and Mathematics Education at the University of California, Berkeley. So, she did quite a bit, didn't she, for a woman who married at 14? The founder and director of a small press, Scarlett Tanninger Books, which you heard some discussion about a few months ago when Lucille was here speaking about the book that she published and has also got a poem in called Turning a Train of Thought Upside Down. And then she served for 17 years as the director of the Hall of Health, an interactive children's museum in Berkeley, California. Well, that was quite a bit to have crammed in. I'm so happy that you're here, Lucille Lang Day. Welcome. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here, too. We're looking forward to hearing you read from this book. But first, I want people to hear what the critics had to say. Pulitzer Prize winner Richard Kluger for his book, Ashes to Ashes. He says, quote, Told with self-lacerating honesty and unvarnished prose that rises on command to poetic intensity, Married at 14 is an absorbing memoir of a young woman who struggles to find a storybook romance and a purpose in life beyond it, and against cruel odds, succeeds. Lucille Langday, only child of an obsessive, compulsive mother and an indulgent but passive father, was gifted with brains and beauty, but grew up an unguided missile, willful, reckless, and impulsive in her choice of lovers. Her autobiographical quest transports the narrator across badlands of emotional chaos on her improbable route to domestic serenity and high accomplishments in both the arts and sciences, unquote, Richard Kluger. Well, having just read the book, I would definitely agree with that. Congratulations, Lucy. Thank you. You really did a great job. I wonder if you could share with the listeners some of the book. Okay, I would be happy to do that. I will read an excerpt from the first chapter that sets the stage for what's going to happen, I think, and tells what the book is about. I started seriously looking for a husband when I was 12. I'd had enough of being a child, enough of being told what to do. I was unhappy at school. I resented homework. I didn't get along with my mother. 
Having seen movies like South Pacific, Sayonara, and A Summer Place, I believed in true love. More than anything, I wanted Rosano Brazzi, Marlon Brando, or Troy Donahue to come rescue me from my childhood. I wanted to be an adult, to be free, and to be loved. The grown-ups always warned that getting pregnant as a teenager would ruin your life, but I didn't believe them. I felt that in truth my life would be ruined if I had to live with my mother much longer. Her nagging would drive me crazy, and my sanity would benefit even more if I could be freed from boring math drills and stuck-up classmates. A high school diploma? I didn't need one. I already knew everything I'd ever need to know. My thoughts on all these things began to crystallize in the summer of 1960 after my sixth grade graduation from Egbert W. Beach School in Piedmont, California. That summer, I went to Camp Augusta, where Piedmont bluebirds and campfire girls rode horses, swam, wove keychains from long strips of colored plastic, and painted daisies on salt and pepper shakers for their mothers. On the bus, which took us from the Piedmont Community Center to the Sierra foothills, we sang 99 bottles of beer on the wall and a hot time in the old town. But my fun was to be short-lived. Singing on the bus, I had no inkling that once at Camp Augusta, I would spend my time figuring out how to avoid the broom treatment and that having accomplished that, I would dive headlong into a turbulent adolescence. So what got you started in writing a memoir? I felt like I had a story to tell with friends or at parties, start talking to somebody and, you know, you, they ask you questions about your life and you answer, you know, I would tell them a little about having been a teen mother and a juvenile delinquent and going back to school and they, everybody would say, oh, you should write a book about that. So I thought maybe it would be a book that would be of interest to people and that also it could inspire people and it could to show that no matter how badly you mess up, you can still accomplish something with your life and get back on track and also I think it's about other juvenile delinquents and teen mothers not just about me in that they still have all the potential that they ever had even though they've made these mistakes what happens then after she goes to summer camp or after you go to summer camp because the book reads like a novel I Uh, tend to uh, think of it uh, that way Good, I'm glad it works that way. Well, what happens next is that I do indeed start looking for a husband when I'm 12, and I find one when I'm 14, and I'll read a piece about the chapter where I hook up with the boy that I marry. On a Friday night in late February, I took a Greyhound bus from Oakland to Walnut Creek, about 20 miles away, to hang out at Al's Drive-In on North Main Street. I hoped someone I could fall in love with might drive through. It was colder than usual for the San Francisco Bay Area, and standing under one of the outdoor heaters, I shivered in my tight black and white plaid skirt, black sweater, and beige car coat, aptly named because it was so thin it was only suitable for wearing inside a car. There weren't as many kids at Al's as usual, but two cute boys, Chet and Mark, showed up as I sipped my Coke. I'd met them a couple of weeks earlier when they passed through Al's in the back of a pickup truck. Between drags from a Marlboro, I said, I'm cold. 
I didn't expect the boys to do anything about it, but Chet took off his jacket and handed it to me. Mark said, mine is warmer, and held it out to me, too. I felt the fabric of Chet's plaid wool jacket between my thumb and forefinger, then the fabric of Mark's, which was beige and made of a foamy synthetic material. I said, I'll take both, and I put them on, first Chet's, then Mark's, over my own. Chet Sandler had curly light brown hair and lashes so thick they made his eyes girlishly pretty. He didn't look like a hood, but then again he didn't look square either, so I figured he was okay. Mark Day was tall and slender with lively blue eyes and wavy dark brown hair that looked like it was held in place with axle grease. He had more of a bad boy aura than Chet did, which I liked. He described his family, which included three brothers, a sister, and four stepbrothers and stepsisters. Having no brothers or sisters, I thought this sounded like paradise. His family lived in Pleasant Hill, but he dropped out of Pleasant Hill High School and at 16 was working as an apprentice cabinet maker with his father and living in Oakland with his grandmother. I pointed out that none of us had a date that night. Chet was none too happy about it. I need a woman, he said. I really like to be engaged or going steady. I turned to Mark. How about you? I'm never getting married. I'm a confirmed bachelor. I took this as a challenge. Consciously or unconsciously, he was daring me to try to win his heart. So there he was at 14 also? Uh, no, he was 16. At 16, a confirmed bachelor. <laughs> but um, I did win his heart, and I married him seven months later, which, by which time I was still 14, but he had turned 17. So, uh, shall I read a little about our wedding and our honeymoon? Oh, please do. Okay. On September 8th, three months before my 15th birthday and the week before I should have started ninth grade, the sky was a luminous blue as Mark and I entered the First Methodist Church in Reno. Our mothers asked the organist to play I Love You Truly. I'd have picked Love Me Tender, but I wanted our mothers to be happy. Standing at the altar, I found it hard not to giggle. Mark looked so skinny in his rented navy blue suit. When I knelt, I thought my tight-fitting dress would rip, but it held. I stood again, and Mark put the ring on my finger. I knew many people would call me a fool, but I was incredibly happy. I thought ours was a unique and wondrous passion. Antony and Cleopatra, Elizabeth Barrett and Robert Browning, F. Scott Fitzgerald and Zach a step aside. Mark was the prince, and I was his princess, and our wedding would fulfill the promise of our extraordinary love. Afterward, we all went to Lake Tahoe for steak dinners at Harvey's Wagon Wheel. Other than me, the women at the table came in matched pairs. Ellen and Judy, Mark's mother and stepmother, were redheads with sarcastic senses of humor and the worldliness of women who worked outside the home. My mom and Aunt Ethel, badgering the waiter with endless complaints, were identical twins, just over five feet tall, who wore shortened size 14 dresses over their corsets and told and retold the joke about the woman who pulled a sugar cube from her brassiere then asked her guests if they'd also like cream. Mark's stepfather, Pete, a large man with a square jaw, ordered drink after drink and stood up to toast Mark and me each time a new one arrived. 
Mark's dad, Tom, and mine, masticating their steaks, said they felt lucky. At first, I thought they were referring to Mark's and my marriage, but as the conversation continued, I realized they were talking about blackjack. We had a four-day honeymoon at Tom and Judy's house in El Cerrito, just north of Berkeley, while the adults stayed at Tahoe to play Kino, Blackjack, and the slot machines. For dinner the first night, I served leftover macaroni and cheese I found in a Corningware dish in the refrigerator. I left it in the oven too long, and it burned on the bottom. I didn't know how to get the black stuff off the dish, so I washed and dried it, then put it back in the cupboard with the last of the charred macaroni still stuck to the bottom. I didn't want to be seen naked, and neither did Mark. I was embarrassed by my small breasts. I don't know what his problem was. If I wasn't wearing a nightgown or blouse when we made love, I'd put a pillow over my chest to cover my breasts. Mark always made me close my eyes while he pulled his pants up or down. Even so, we had sex four or five times a day. I'd rather have spent some of this time walking on the Berkeley Pier, playing Scrabble, or shopping for things for our apartment, but I wanted to make Mark happy. He invited our friend Steve and Steve's friend Mike, one of my ex-boyfriends, to visit us. I wished we could have had our honeymoon far away from the Bay Area because their arrival made it very unromantic. Each time Mark and I came out of the bedroom, Steve and Mike had dopey grins. It infuriated me, but I didn't want to say anything that might spoil my honeymoon even more. After they left, with Mark's invitation to return the next day, I said, why do you want them here? Are you bored with me? Mark said, I thought you'd want to see them. They're your friends, too. What happens next is it, the marriage doesn't turn out to be anything like it was supposed to be in my romantic fantasies. So I'll, I'll read a little about that. The evening of my 16th birthday, Mark said he was going to the standard station where he'd recently taken a job to work on his car. I thought he was really planning a surprise party for me, so I asked if I could go with him. I was playing along. He said, sure, but there won't be much for you to do. I dressed up in tight white pants and a purple check peasant blouse from Fredericks of Hollywood. I even left Leanna, our daughter, with my mother because I expected that friends would meet us at the station and we'd go somewhere to celebrate. My surprise, however, was that I spent the whole evening sitting on a stool watching Mark work on his 56 Chevy with a cigarette dangling from his mouth. My feelings for Mark had been gradually changing, and the birthday surprise didn't help. My marriage bore no resemblance to the fairy tale romance I'd hoped for. In my fantasies, Mark had been cast as my prince and savior, but in truth he was just an 18-year-old boy who'd been handed an impossible role. When we kissed now, I felt repulsed. It was mainly because I felt let down emotionally, but the fact that he never brushed his teeth was also on my mind. Mark knew my feelings had changed, although I'd never said, I don't love you anymore, or even, I'm disappointed. I distanced myself from him, and he didn't understand why. He wrote a poem for me with the refrain, Where has my Lucy gone? I was touched by the poem, but it didn't rekindle my passion. 
On a rainy Saturday afternoon in March, Mark, Steve, and I drove to Mark's grandmother's house in the Chevy. Steve kept reaching from the back seat to mess up my hair, which I'd spent an hour arranging just so. It was ratted on top to a height of four or five inches. In the back, I'd pinned several artificial flowers and a bow. From this bouquet, my hair descended to my waist. I told Steve to stop, but he persisted. I sat on the edge of my seat and said I was serious, but he said, I'm doing you a favor. It looks better down. A few years later, I'd agree with him. When he reached for my hair again, I bopped his chin with my hairbrush, but he wasn't phased. The battle continued after we got out of the car. Mark's grandmother wasn't at home, and as he fumbled for his key on the front porch, Steve kept trying to flatten my hair. Fighting back, I hit him on the shoulder with my umbrella, and Mark grabbed it from me. As we entered the house and went to the kitchen for Cokes, Steve was laughing, but Mark was not. Mark had a wild look in his eyes. Before I could figure out what that meant, he drew back his fist and slugged me in the eye. I saw stars, then everything went black, and I fell on the floor in front of the refrigerator. When I came to, the world was still black, and I thought Mark had blinded me. But after a few minutes, my vision returned. I said, it was enough to grab the umbrella. You had no right to hit me. He was no longer my husband, but an unfamiliar being with heavy breath and narrow eyes. You got what you deserved, he said. Afraid he might do it again, I didn't argue. I went to the bathroom to examine my puffy red cheek and blackening eye, and I felt a hatred as pure and strong as any emotion I had ever known. You're listening to Lucy Lang Day reading from her memoir, Married at 14, published by Heyday Books. That's quite a moment. It was quite a, a moment. Um, and after that, I divorced him. But then he apologized for hitting me and assured me that he loved me and would never do it again. So we got divorced when I was 16 and then married again when I was 17. And then I left him again finally when I was 18 and went back to high school. And then I finished high school in three semesters and two summer sessions and went on to UC Berkeley. So because you, by then I was very highly motivated to go to school. Yeah, you had really serious study habits by then, it seems. Yes, and having been by that time a, a welfare mom, uh, and, and I'd experienced two bad marriages, both with the same man, and having worked as a phone girl at Chicken Delight and a, and a gas station attendant, I was just really gung-ho to do well in school. Now, in the second part of the book, it tells about what happens to me in college and in my adult life. And one of the things that happens is that I really realize that my mother is not an ogre the way I saw her when I was an adolescent, but she's actually my best friend. So I will read the piece where I come to that realization, and I'm coming to pick up my daughter, Leanna, at my mother's house, and this is when I was a senior in college. 
When I entered my mom and dad's house, Leanna rushed into my arms and hugged me as though I'd been in New York for six months. The feelings of intense love I'd felt the previous day when I saw the woman and baby washed over me again and I held Leanna closer. My mom came into the room, and when I let go of Leanna, she opened her arms and hugged me too, saying, I love you, Lucy. You're my best friend. More waves of love broke over me. I remembered how, as a teenager, I'd resented her so strongly that I lived to defy her and was obsessed by all the ways she'd hurt me when I was a child. I couldn't even get going in high school until I moved out of her home. Somewhere along the line, I now realized it had stopped mattering that she'd snuck out of the house, leaving me with babysitters, and yelled at me when I skinned my knees. I had forgiven everything, the yelling, the spankings and the lies i accepted that she wasn't perfect why should she be nobody else was she did my laundry babysat leanna for free and listened intently to blow by blow accounts of my failed romances maybe she was my best friend too the thought made me laugh and how old do you think you were then? By then, I would be 23, because I graduated from high, from college rather when I was 23, uh, one year late, because I was out of school from the time I was 14 until I was 17. So then I thought I'd read one more piece about my mother, and this is when she is dying of cancer, and she was kind of feisty and cantankerous right up until the end. But, you know, I, by then I just realized that was who she was, and I... I completely accepted her so i'm arriving at at her house my mother looked me over as she always did before passing judgment on my hair and clothes i like your dress she said is it new my sleeveless beige cotton dress printed with clusters of rust-colored flowers was from a discount store i got it a couple of months ago at ross i was pleased my appearance could give her some small pleasure Though I remembered how, as a teenager, I'd love to outrage and embarrass her by ratting my hair as high as possible, rolling the waistband of my skirt to make it as short as possible, and outlining my eyes with thick black bands of eyeliner and rainbows of blue-green and lavender eyeshadow. My mother never talked about those days. She never mentioned the past, either her own or mine. She was eternally rooted in the present and future, never looking back. I wished I could look back with her to exist examine the layers of her life and mine. The dress I wore now was not the one foremost in either my mother's mind or mine. It was a big day for dresses because I was about to go shopping for one to wear to Leanna's wedding, which was two weeks and six days away. Why did you wait so long to look for a dress, my mother asked. I've had my dress for two months. You're the mother of the bride! Scolding was her normal mode of interacting with my father and me. When I was a child, I thought her scoldings meant she didn't love me. But now they amused me. It was touching, even, that she was so obsessed with my appearance. I work full time. It's hard to find time to shop. Can I see your dress? I was worried that she might not be well enough to attend the wedding. But pretending that she would be there seemed like the right thing to do. Dick. I'm too weak to get up. Show Lucy my dress. It's the pink one in the closet in the front hall. 
My father and I looked through the closet, but we couldn't find it. So he went into the bedroom closet while I returned to the living room. Where's your father? Her voice had turned querulous. He went to the bedroom to look for your dress. I told him it was in the front hall, not the bedroom. I couldn't find the dress, he said when he came back. That's because you weren't looking where I told you to, she yelled. It isn't in the bedroom, it's in the front hall. We looked there, he protested. We couldn't find it. It's in the garment bag. Don't you two nincompoops know enough to look in a garment bag? She continued at full volume. I know where I put my dress. I may be weak, but I'm not senile. She scowled. With all your degrees, I think you'd know how to find a dress in a closet. I suppressed a laugh. My mother always yelled over trivial things. It was impossible to please her. As a child, I'd wanted to get away from her. This was one reason I married for the first time as a teenager. After hearing it for almost 50 years, though, I was no longer fazed by her yelling. I didn't feel anger, hurt, or even embarrassment when she screamed at me or anyone else, at home or in public. My father had never seemed to be affected by her tirades. You're listening to Lucille Lang Day, and she's reading from her memoir, Married at 14, Heyday Books. Then what happens? So what happens after that was, unfortunately, my mother died before the the wedding. But, you know, I felt that I had a full reconciliation for her and, you know, and accepted her with her nagging and yelling and and all of it. And then, you know, what happened in my life was after, you know, I went back to school and, you know, and became a regular law-abiding adult, (laughs) upright citizen, I hope, I realized that that deep inside, uh, you know, I'm still related to the wild adolescent that I was. And, you know, and my rebelliousness has come out in various ways. And so I'll just uh, read one episode about that, what I think shows my contrariness and how it's paid off. And this is something that happened when I was a senior at UC Berkeley. When I was a senior at UC Berkeley, I took an upper division course in quantum mechanics. It was part of a physical chemistry sequence for chemistry majors, and I enrolled because the sequence for biology majors conflicted with classes I wanted to take in dramatic art and sculpture. In the quantum mechanics course, all of my classmates were men. This was 1971, and a great many people still thought that men were innately better than women in math and science. Some still do, but Thankfully, their numbers are dwindling. I sat at the back of the class because I didn't want all of the men staring at the back of my head during the lectures. I prepared for exams in previous physics and chemistry courses by reading and rereading the textbook and my lecture notes by going over the homework problems again and again. Before my midterm in quantum mechanics, I tried something different. After reading the text and lecture notes only once, I did all of the problems at the end of the chapters we'd covered including those that hadn't been assigned. It worked. I sailed through the exam like a cliff swallow on an ocean breeze, finished early, and got the highest grade in the class. The day the exams were returned, Professor Jura followed me out of the classroom. He said, while I lectured, I always looked at you and thought you didn't belong there, didn't understand what was going on, and were going to flunk. I'll never think that about a student again. He also said he'd give me a recommendation any time for any reason because he thought I could do 
do whatever I wanted. The point here is not that I'm a mathematical or scientific genius. I'm sure I'm not. The point is that I thought that the idea women weren't as good as men in math and science was a bunch of baloney, acted accordingly, and won Professor Jura over. Later, hoping to win more people over, I would co-author a book entitled How to Encourage Girls in Math and Science, Strategies for Parents and Educators. So that's just an example of how it could just be a very good thing not to believe what you're told. Well, thank you, Lucy Langday, for sharing this wonderful memoir. I want to close by saying what Jack Foley, a fellow KPFA programmer, has said about the book. The book tells us that a restless, not easily satisfied, constantly questioning intellect may, in the right situation, pull away from dropout city towards love, satisfaction, a world. These are the last words of the book. Quote, alive with offerings. And thank you for your offerings, Lucille Langday, author of Married at 14. And thank you, too. It's been a pleasure to be here. Since we recorded this interview with Lucy Langday about her memoir, Married at 14, the book has been nominated for two 2012 awards, one from Penn Oakland and the other for the Northern California Book Award in Creative Nonfiction. Congratulations, Lucy Langday. This has been Nina Sverno with Jill Montgomery for the Poet to Poet series. Please check out my website, ninaserrano.com, to hear other programs, poems, and a listing of my upcoming events. Thanks for listening. What happened? How'd we get here? Only a few blinks back, Barack Obama was struggling to get reelected during a crisis of joblessness, rampant militarism, legal torture, one of the most poisonous political climates in American history. The Republicans seemed unopposed in jamming the entire country farther to the right. And then, ask Jonathan Alter, veteran writer for the New York Times, MSNBC, and Bloomberg View. This wily insider will be in Berkeley with his nonfiction thriller, The Center Holds, Obama and His Enemies. Aaron, ask what happened. Wednesday, June 19, 7.30 p.m., St. John's Presbyterian Church, 2727 College Avenue in Berkeley. There's wheelchair access. Tina Boschman will host. Advanced tickets only 12 bucks at brown paper tickets.